Donald Trump. Have your attention. Sometimes things just elicit responses in people. It might be negative, it might be positive, but there's no way you can ignore it. There's another one, uh, The Making of a Murderer. I think I said that right. Don't tell me anything about it. I haven't watched it yet, but it's this documentary that's on Netflix. And every time I see or hear people talk about it, I first yell at them and say, I haven't watched it yet, so don't say anything. But then I notice as they're whispering to the other person in the room who's watched it, I actually witnessed this happen last night, people are animated. Like, the, this is apparently the story, the guy is the killer or he's not the killer, and it elicits a response in people, and they want to Google, and they want to learn more, and they want to defend this person that they've never met, because, because it sparks something in them, because it's just so controversial. And here's what I think. Jesus is the most controversial figure ever to live. But in American society today, in some ways we have allowed for Jesus to be ignored. We have turned him into, and I think when I, when I say we, I mean pastors and I mean Christians, we've turned him into a figure that can just kind of be liked or kind of disliked without really eliciting a major response. Nobody goes aside and whispers and gets mad because the other person disagrees with them about Jesus anymore. He's just become kind of this afterthought. In fact, sometimes he's the butt of jokes. And, you know, as Christians, if you're a Christian, we do this. We treat Jesus as just like this little part of our life who can be turned on and turned off, ignored and unignored when we choose to do that. Uh, but it's not something that we're real passionate about. He's not somebody that, that, that even elicits a response from us. And, you know, when we come to church, maybe there's a little bit of a response, but it's not that emotional, it's not that passionate. He's just kind of this figure that's there that, that, that we maybe pray to at night or in the morning and maybe sing to a little on Sundays, but there's not, there's not a Donald Trump-type reaction, you know? I mean, yeah, let's go get him, get him in office, you know? I mean, or, or the opposite of that. I mean, Jesus is just, for a lot of Christians, become kind of just this, this person that, yeah, I follow him because I've followed him, but... but but there's not a grand emotional uh, connection. I'm not very passionate about him anymore. It's not that big a deal. It's just a little part of my life. For non-Christians, it's, it's worse. Jesus has become like the butt of jokes. That's really what Jesus is for a lot of people. I, uh, I was on Reddit and I looked up Jesus to see you know, what's out there, uh, what's happening uh, in the internet world about Jesus and see things like this. And this is like pretty consistent. This is not like I searched for hours on end to try to find something to fit this sermon. It's like Jesus has literally become just a joke. Like uh, this is a headline. Jesus and Hitler walked into a bar. And that's what we get. Jesus and Satan are arguing about who is better on a computer. I didn't read these articles. I don't know where they go, but you can tell the flavor and the feel of them. Or this one, probably the worst one, and I'm going to try to say this in the nicest way possible or else I will elicit a response from you. When writing the Lord's name in vain, but he didn't write that part. That's me in brackets. The Lord's name in vain, F word, should I capitalize the F? Now, we might be offended by that, but I don't think we're probably as offended as we should be by that. And it's because we've allowed for Jesus to be this 
figure that, that is just kind of there. He's just kind of a guy. He's not somebody that we're passionate about or that we even, some people, if you're not a Christian, get mad about because of the things he said. Or if you are a Christian, uh, you know, passionately defend. He's just kind of this figure. And here's, here's why I think it's happened. We've taken kind of the two most controversial parts of Jesus and the story of Jesus as recorded in the Bible, and we've tried to hide them and cover them up, and preachers don't talk about them because their churches won't grow as fast, and, and we don't like to share them with our friends. We just tell people the easy, the nice things about Jesus, the things that everybody will agree upon, the things that make us sound good. I mean, we are in a lot of ways like every other Republican candidate that's not Donald Trump, and people can just ignore us and just pretend that, you know, oh, they're pretty nice. They seem pretty nice. I don't really know where they stand because, because we have taken these two issues that are controversial that should make us mad or excited that should make us follow hard after Jesus or totally reject Jesus and we said let's not talk about those because we might lose something because it might shrink our church because we might be offensive I don't know why but we, we've just taken them and, and pushed them aside we've hid them in the darkness of Christianity in some ways and in the passage we're going to look at today Isaiah, speaking about Emmanuel, God with us, who is Jesus, he says, here's something you need to know about Jesus, and then he just says these two things, just these two things that we try to hide, that we try to pretend don't exist, that we, that we kind of just shove down somewhere else and say, follow Jesus because, because you get the golden streets of heaven someday, or you know, follow Jesus because he'll make everything better in your life, and we like saying those types of things, but but Isaiah doesn't say those. He says, like, here's two things you need to know about Jesus, and they are things that you either accept wholeheartedly and become more passionate about Jesus because of, or they are things that you just reject, and you hate Jesus, and you deny Jesus, and you are sad that people follow Jesus, and you, you should be. You should be upset that we are gathered here this morning in the name of Jesus if these two things are not true, but the Bible has declared them to be true. And here's what Isaiah says, chapter 52, verse 13 is where, will we, where we will begin, and, and it is the beginning of this pretty long poem that goes into chapter 53 of Isaiah, and it's a beautiful poem, but it's a poem that is driven by the horrible suffering of Jesus. But that is not where Isaiah starts nor finishes it, because in Isaiah 52, 13, he says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. The phrase, the phrase will act wisely is, is better translated, more properly translated. Uh, my servant will prosper or my servant will succeed. And sometimes when we think about Christianity, when we think about Jesus, I would offer... You might think I'm wrong, but I think you'll agree. I would offer that even we who are Christians, who love Jesus, who serve Jesus, who declare Jesus to be the God of the universe, Emmanuel, God who came to be with us, even us, we treat Jesus like this loser person who was kind of a weenie, walked around on earth, died, and just kind of hangs out in heaven waiting for us to go and be with him. 
I think you might agree that when we talk about Jesus, we talk about him like he's somebody who constantly needs to be defended, that is really capable of losing and probably is losing. When you think about the way that we interact with what's happening in the world, it's almost as if, man, Jesus is really getting his butt kicked. I wish he would do something, you know? I mean, Jesus needs my help or we're scared because Jesus is not strong enough or Jesus is not big enough. And at the very beginning of this poem about how Jesus will suffer, Isaiah says, here's one thing you need to know about this Emmanuel character. He wins. He wins. There is no question for Isaiah, even before he writes about Jesus' death, he just says, hey, you need to understand this. He's a winner. He is a winner, and here's how we know he's a winner, because what will happen after his death. And Isaiah says these three things. He says that Jesus rises, and he says that Jesus ascended, and that Jesus sits on his throne. We know that that's what he means from the New Testament. I just want to put up this image of Jesus here. When you look at this, it is an easy image to just dismiss. And I think that our art, in a lot of ways, has, has caused us to forget just how tough Jesus was. I mean, Jesus was like a tough guy when he walked around the earth. He, he, he lived and he walked around the wilderness. He, he knew how to camp, unlike me. I mean, he, he was hanging out with fishermen and, and criminals. And, and, and then he, he died a death that he didn't have to die. He just chose it. He said, like, I'm tough enough to, to be nailed to a cross, something we'll see in a second. And then he died and then he rose again. And, and what Isaiah is telling us and what the New Testament tells us is that he rose again and then he ascended into heaven and now he sits on a throne in heaven. And that is something that cannot be ignored. We think about, we talk about, yeah, Jesus died, but we forget about this fact that somewhere in the expanse of of all that exists, Jesus sits on a throne ruling and reigning over everything. You see, as Christians, we don't just declare that Jesus is Savior. We also declare that Jesus is Lord of all. And when Jesus walked around on earth, he said the very same thing. Hey, I'm God. Hey, I'm the one that's to be obeyed. He said, hey, follow me. Hey, he said, hey, if you're going to follow me, here's what you need to do. You need to leave everything behind to follow me. Oh, you have a funeral coming up and that's more important than me? That's not good enough. Oh, you like your money a little bit? And that's bigger than me, not good enough. You need to leave everything to follow me because I am the Lord of everything and you need to treat me as such. You see, if we just like this idea that Jesus is this guy that you just ask things for. He's like your grandpa, you know, like, hey, grandpa, can I get some money? That's how we treat Jesus. Hey, Jesus, need a little help. Haven't talked to you in a while, but need a little help. Can you fix this thing for me? Can you do this thing for me? Decided to go to church. It's Easter. Easter's coming up. I decided to go to church, you know, so I'm going to sing to you and pretend we haven't spoken in whoever, however long it's been or whatever. But Isaiah, at the very beginning, goes, here's what you need to understand about Emmanuel. He is the winner, and he's the winner because he is the Lord, and he should be treated as such. You see, one of the things we don't like to tell people is that Jesus demanded and demands absolute, full, 100% obedience to him. Jesus demands that you give him your entire, whole life. Not a part of your Sundays, not a part of your morning routine, but your entire life 
That's what Jesus demands from you. And he has the right to demand it because he is Emmanuel, God with us, who got out of a grave, ascended into heaven, and now sits on a throne ruling over everything. You say, well, it doesn't seem like he's ruling sometimes. Well, he knows what he's doing. Even that thought, like, is Jesus paying attention? Yeah, Jesus is in charge of everything. Jesus is absolutely in charge. And if he chooses to let Satan have his way for a certain time, if he chooses to not answer your prayer with a yes for a certain time, then Jesus is right to do so because he's absolutely in charge. He's not failing. I sometimes hear people say things like, and, and they say it in the most offensive way possible. At least they're paying attention and they're offended by Jesus. But, but they'll say things like, well, if Jesus allows for that to happen, then I don't want any part of him. It doesn't matter what Jesus allows to happen. It doesn't matter because he's Lord of the universe and you'll answer to him eventually. It doesn't matter your feelings. It doesn't matter if you like what he does or does not do. It doesn't matter if you're offended by him or his people. He's still Lord of the universe. And the reality is you need to serve him because in eternity you will serve him one way or another. The only question is if you get his eternal life in heaven or not. You see, we want to pretend that Jesus is just this guy that you get stuff from. That it's fun to serve. But that's not the whole story. Jesus is Lord of all. He's king of the universe. He is king of kings and Lord of lords, in fact. He is the almighty God who sits on the throne and he demands all of you, whether you like the idea of him or not, it does not matter. You see, it's easy to ignore because he's not talked about correctly. We forget this verse in Isaiah. In fact, I didn't know this verse in Isaiah was here, but I knew all about Isaiah 53, which we'll get to next week. Because we like the parts in Isaiah 53, but we don't like to tell people necessarily about this. Jesus is Lord of all. He demands your respect. He demands your following of him. He demands your honor. He demands your glory. He demands your worship. And he will get it eventually, no matter what. The question is, will you give it to him now? And then Isaiah like just flips. It's like the most dramatic flip that you can possibly imagine um, in two sentences, I think. In Isaiah 52, 14, it says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Appalled translates a word that means astonished or startled or petrified or paralyzed. Isaiah is saying about Emmanuel who would come people will be freaked out by his appearance. People will be freaked out by it. Now here's what we do, and rightfully so. We say Jesus died for people's sins. I believe that to be true. If you're a Christian, you believe that to be true. But in our society, the problem with that statement is that we say things like that all the time. You may have said this week in a joking way, I hope, I'm gonna kill you. You know, I'm going to kill you. You may have said, and this is a common phrase, it's a phrase that I used about sports. They killed it tonight. We say things like, you're dead, man, when we mean that somebody is in trouble. We treat this this thing called death in our normal everyday language as just not that big a deal. And so when we come along and we say, Jesus died for you, it's just not that important. It's not that big a deal. We don't usually, usually connect like, oh, man. 
This person actually ceased to exist on earth for a while because he was paying for my sins. We don't make that connection. But the language in Isaiah, unlike the language of he died for your sins, is language that cannot be ignored because Isaiah says, here's what's going to happen to Emmanuel, God with us. Here's what will take place in Jesus' life. He will be beaten up so badly, so badly, that he will not be recognizable as a human being anymore. Isaiah doesn't just say that Jesus died. Isaiah shows us that that Jesus was attacked, tortured, pummeled, mauled, thrashed, battered, trampled. He got beat to shreds, and I mean that absolutely literally. He was beat to shreds. He got beat up so bad that he was marred, and then this word we want to put up there. He was beat up so bad that he was disfigured. You see, Jesus didn't just die for you. Jesus was disfigured for you. That's a much more compelling word, a word that's a little bit more controversial. Everybody and most people in American society, they have the concept, the idea that Jesus died for us. I mean, that we believe that anyway, that Christians believe that. But what we don't like to say to people, what we don't like to talk about is that Jesus was disfigured for us. I want to just tell you what happened to Jesus and hopefully it'll come across like I like. I actually got physically sick a little bit um, reading uh, about what took place in Jesus when he was killed, uh, when he was disfigured. Um, But I just want to kind of bullet point through this for you just so that you can remember what it was like uh, when Jesus suffered for you. He sweated blood the night before he was killed. He was arrested and then he was struck in the face. He was spit on. His beard may have been pulled out. He was struck by the men who arrested him. He was scorched. That means that the skin of his back was literally ripped off by a whip that consisted of metal and rock. He had a crown of thorns placed on his head. He was struck in the face with rods by multiple Roman soldiers and it would have driven the thorns deeper into his brow. His robe, like a a bandage on a fresh wound, was then ripped off by those soldiers as they mocked him. His bloody back would have re-wounded itself in some ways. A beam was placed on his back and then he had nails driven into his hands and feet. And Isaiah simply describes all of that, all that Jesus went through, is becoming so disfigured, so disfigured, that he was not recognizable as a human anymore. And when we think about Jesus, we picture a white guy with a little halo over his head, smiling and saying, I'll help you out. You see, we're fine talking about how Jesus died, but we don't want to talk about the brutality of the cross in Christian circles. And so we don't force ourselves or other people to make a true decision about where they fall on Jesus because we just kind of say, well, he died for you. Jesus died for your sins, accept it. But Isaiah comes along and Isaiah, as clear as he can possibly say, it says, look, Jesus is Lord of all. He demands all of you. And one of the reasons that, that you should give him all of you is because he was marred and disfigured for your sins. 
1 Peter 2, 22 through 24 describes it this way. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. There it is. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus was disfigured for your sins, but the crazy reality to me is that the worst part of Jesus' death, you read through the New Testament, doesn't seem to be the fact that he was beat to shreds. The worst part of Jesus' death seems to be something that was spiritually taking place. Because when he hung on that cross, it was as if he was going to hell. All of your sins, all of the punishment that you deserve was hanging on that cross in the very body of Jesus. And so when we read about the horrible, horrible physical experience that Jesus endured for us, we need to remember that it's not even half of the anguish. It's not even half of the difficulty of what he bared because the true suffering was the spiritual suffering that he took on. Paying for your sin. And Isaiah reminds us of that as he continues into verse 15. Verse 15, he says, So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they, were, what they have not heard, they will understand. This word sprinkle is really interesting. It's an interesting Hebrew word because, like all of Hebrew, it seems, uh, nobody knows exactly what the people mean because Hebrew has like a hundred words and they use it for everything in the whole, their whole language. It's more than that, but that's an exaggeration. But it really is like, this word means love and hate and mean and angry and happy. What am I supposed to do with that? You know, I mean, that's why I'm a D minus Hebrew student. Uh, but this word is interesting because it's two meanings are so different, yet, yet speak so much truth into our lives in this passage. The, that word that's translated sprinkle in the New International Version of the Bible can, be, can mean sprinkle. And it would be the same word that is used throughout the Old Testament of the sprinkling of blood, as if a, a person was sticking their finger into the blood of a goat and then sprinkling it onto an altar. This was a common practice in, in the Jewish religion. It was done in order that things would be clean, ceremonially clean. In Leviticus 5, 8, and 9, we read, They are to bring them to the priest who shall first offer the one for the sin offering. He is to wring his head from its neck, not diving in completely. Dividing it completely, that's a different phrase. Not dividing it, <laughs> you got her in glasses maybe, maybe it's that time. Not dividing it completely and is to splash some of the blood of the sin offering against the side of the altar. The rest of the blood must be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. And when you hear the word sprinkle, if you've read through the Old Testament, the first thing that comes to mind is the Day of Atonement. And on the Day of Atonement, uh, the high priest, the main priest in all the land, in all of Israel, would go into the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence was most strongly felt. And he would take blood and he would sprinkle it. And he would do that in order to atone, to offer uh, a sacrifice for the people's sins so that they could be forgiven by God. And so when we read this, it's clear. 
it's clear to me that we ought to make the connection to what Jesus does for us. He didn't just get disfigured for no reason. He did it so that you and I and people from every nation could be sprinkled by the blood of him. And we could have forgiveness from sins. You see, that's another reason that we can't ignore Jesus. And it's another thing we don't like to talk about. We don't like to say the word sin. We don't like to say that people have done things wrong. In our society, we like to make everybody feel like they're always doing everything right, that everything is okay, that everything's good. We've tried to dilute the idea of wrong and right altogether, simply saying, hey, whatever you think is wrong is wrong, whatever I think is wrong is wrong, but they may not be the same thing. But the Bible shows us a completely different picture. What the Bible says is, is what is wrong is what God doesn't want you to do. And every one of us has done something wrong, something that God did not want us to do. And when Emmanuel came, when God came to be with us, when Jesus showed up on the scene, he didn't just show up for no reason. He showed up because he looked down at earth and he saw that we had all done something wrong. We had all sinned. And so he was disfigured so that you could be sprinkled metaphorically with his blood and be forgiven just as on the day of atonement for your sins. You see, that's controversial. You're either in or you're out. You either follow Jesus because of that or you say, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard and I don't want any part of it. You either admit to your sin and you look at Jesus and say, man, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for saving me from those sins. Or you go, this is, this is a bunch of crap. This is not real. This cannot be seen as real. I'm not a sinner. I haven't done anything wrong. You must make a decision. When the Bible says here, here is part of why Jesus came, it's because you've messed up. You've done wrong things and you can't do anything to forgive yourself and you can't do anything to pay for the sins that you've done. You must be punished, but Jesus took that punishment for you and you can be sprinkled by his blood. We sing it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But we pretend that it could be our guilt or our restitution or some type of penance. Isaiah says he came and got disfigured beyond human recognition so that you could be forgiven for your sins. But there's this other way it can be translated. And it's leap. Told you Hebrew's kind of messed up, right? <laughs> Sprinkle or leap it doesn't seem quite the same. But this word, if translated leap, is connected to people's emotions. Like you jump because of the emotion that you feel. My uncle and I were, and I tell this story a lot because I like it, uh, we were at the Houston Rocket game a couple of years ago when Damian Lillard hit the three-pointer and we won the series. And uh, I'm a pretty demonstrative person when it comes to emotion, and so it's normal for me. Uh, and, but this is one of my favorite memories in my whole life. When Damian Lillard hit the shot, my uncle, who's not as young as he once was, was just jumping up and down going, Woo! for about five minutes, just like that. And the thing is, nobody said to Mike, nobody said, hey, you should jump right now. That's a normal thing to do. Something welled inside of him, and all of us really, and all of the whole state of Oregon, I believe, something welled inside of us that made us want to jump. I have a very similar experience that I wasn't at with another Blazer game. Uh, some of you will remember that Brandon Roy led us back from a 23-point deficit. And me and my friend, uh, Emil, uh, were sitting in his living room. And 
Uh, me and Emil have a, a great relationship, but it's one where we like to make fun of each other a lot. Uh, but when Brandon Roy was making that comeback, I'm not kidding you, in his, in his living room, we are hugging like this and jumping up and down like this together over and over and over again while it was happening. And nobody said do it. In fact, if we were on video camera, we would have been very embarrassed. We would, and neither of us would like it. We would make fun of each other. Well, you looked more ridiculous than me. That's what we would tell each other. But it's because, it's because when we express serious emotion, we oftentimes feel a need to jump. People do it at concerts. It's a thing called a mosh pit. I've never been in one of those, but maybe you could tell a story about a mosh pit and how you jump because of emotion and excitement. It's just a part of being a human. And Isaiah uses this word. He says that, that the nations will either be sprinkled or the nations will leap. And I think what Isaiah is saying is that when you come to understand all that Jesus has done for you, that, that he is the one who was disfigured so that your sins could be forgiven and that he is savior and Lord of the universe, it, it causes something inside of you that needs to come out. I think some people make this excuse, and I think it, we are a church with probably a higher percentage of people that would make this excuse than other churches. I'm just not that emotional of a person. And so when I pray, when I sing, I, it's just I'm not that expressive. And I, I believe that sometimes, and, and that's true for a lot of people, but I think a lot of people just use it as an excuse because they have forgotten just what an incredible sacrifice Jesus' death and disfigurement was. And they have forgotten that he is Lord of the universe who needs, needs and, and must be served with all of our hearts. And so we're not expressive because there's nothing welling up inside of us. We're not expressive because we just don't care that much. We're not expressive because we have abandoned our first love. We're not expressive because, because Jesus is this part of our lives, but not the center of our lives. And Isaiah uses this word that may just mean you leap. You look at this incredible sacrifice for your sins and something happens inside of you. And it must be expressed. It must be expressed. You see, Isaiah gets to what I'm trying to say today. When it comes to the story of Jesus, that God stepped out of heaven, came to earth, was brutally beaten, tortured, beat up beyond human recognition, beat to shreds for your sins, then got out of the grave, ascended into heaven, sits on a throne, there must be a response. And it can be a negative response if you reject it and you disbelieve it because you should, you should be like, this Jesus guy, the worst liar that the world has ever known. There are people dying. There are people dying all around the world. I believe I read, um, I believe I read uh, that it's 7,000 people last year were murdered because they refused to say that they weren't going to follow Jesus around our world. They're called martyrs in Christian circles. In America, we don't think about that at all, but, but 7,000 people. Now, consider this. Consider this. If some guy lived 2,000 years ago, was walking around going, hey, absolutely be willing to give your life for me, be willing to suffer and die to be tortured for me because here's who I am. 
I'm God who came out of heaven to be here on earth so that I could be disfigured, I could be killed for your sins, and then I'm going to rise again. And then some other guys, because they liked his story or they wanted to be famous or they wanted to be well-known or I don't know what they would have done this for, were like, here's what we'll do. He was killed. He got that part of the story right. But let's continue the lie. Let's continue the lie. Let's pretend that he got out of the grave and let's spread that rumor all over the world that he actually got out of the grave. We'll steal his body, in fact, so that people believe our story. And those same men were willing to die for it themselves, for that same lie. If all of that is true, if it's all a lie, and this guy made this up and gained followers, and 7,000 people died last year for that lie, we should absolutely hate Jesus. We should be so furious at him. He should be an icon of, of what is horrible and evil in the world. But if we choose to accept it, we ought not act like it's not true. We ought to celebrate and rejoice and be emotional and be passionate and be willing to defend him and be willing to tell others about him and not just relegate him to some part of our lives, but our entire lives should be driven by him because it's an absolutely incredible story. You just can't ignore it. Isaiah tells us at the very end of this thing, it's such an incredible story that kings will shut their mouths. I mean, I would think, I I think this is Isaiah's point, I've never met a king, but I would imagine, I would imagine that kings have an arrogance to them and that they always have an answer, and that they always think they're right, and that they always know what to do, and they like telling other people what to do. And so the idea of a king shutting their mouth, I think, I think Isaiah's point is, I can't be certain on this, but I think Isaiah's point is, this is such an incredible story that even the highest, most powerful, perhaps most arrogant people that you can imagine will simply just shut up when they hear the story. And they'll say, that's incredible. Whether they believe it or reject it, who knows? But Isaiah's point is it's so incredible, it can't, be, it can't be ignored. You can't just go, well, I can explain it. You can't explain God coming to earth, being disfigured for your sins, and then rising again from the grave. And the really cool part is that we can all enter into this wonderful gift Isaiah finishes, he says, for what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. And the great part is that we who live now know exactly what Isaiah was talking about thousands of years ago. He was talking about Jesus. And like those kings that he describes, I believe, metaphorically, we too can have our eyes opened if we will choose to place our faith in Jesus. We too can see We can see new grace and new love and new hope and and a new vision of our futures after this life where it is eternal and perfect with the God of heaven. And we can see perhaps for the first time our sins and how bad they are and how wonderful God's love is for us that he would come to this earth and die so that we could be forgiven for those things. I mean, we too... Because we have the story recorded for us in the New Testament. If we will choose to truly examine it and truly uh, seek and, and then truly place our faith in Jesus, we too can see when we used to not see. And I think what Isaiah says is this story is so powerful you can't ignore it. And when you look at it and you look intently enough at it, it opens your eyes to a whole new world. 
a world that must express itself on the outside because it wells something up inside of you, an emotion that is powerful and strong because what God did is so incredible. What I want to offer to you today, just one of two things. If you're not a Christian, I just want you to pay attention. Just listen to what I've said this morning, what Isaiah said to us. God came. He wins. He's Lord. He sits on a throne. He is king of kings. He rules all. He does not lose. He will win. And that same Lord came to earth in the person of Jesus and was beat to shreds for your sins. I just want you to pay attention to that. And if you dive into it and you do all the research you can and you pray and say, God, I don't know about this thing, but that's an incredible story. Will you reveal yourself to me? And, and you reach out to me and say, hey, Chad, I'd like to talk about that. I don't know that I believe that, but that's, I, that's weird and that's an incredible story. Can we talk? And if you get to all, through all that and you, and you really just look at it and dive in and you don't believe it, then, then I can't do anything for you. But this morning, I'm just saying pay attention to it. Because if it's true, you ought to accept it. Don't just pretend that Jesus never existed. Don't just pretend that Christianity is this thing that you can ignore. But really seek, because this is an incredible, incredible person, Jesus. And if you're a Christian, and I know this is hard, we go through life and we have these ebbs and flows and how we connect to the story of Jesus emotionally. I get that. And uh, I've been in about two years where the story doesn't connect emotionally and every time I try to be emotional about, I don't try to be emotional, every time I try to really dive into to Jesus and, and get to a place where it's going to emotionally connect, Satan will be right there fighting against it in one way or another and, uh, and uh, it's probably two and a half years of that. Uh, I grew in those two and a half years. I felt seemed, I believed, I was just as close to Jesus. I, it, it didn't ruin my spiritual life. It didn't make me sin more or anything like that. It just wasn't as, you know, happy and fun as it always is. But I'm coming out of that right now, and, and I'm starting to connect emotionally. And this series has been helping a lot, actually, because when you look at the things Isaiah is saying, it's, it's hard to go, cool, have a nice day, you know? I mean, this is incredible what Isaiah has been saying uh, through, through God. And and so I know that we have these ebbs and flows, but sometimes I think we use that as an excuse. We say, and this is said a lot, I just don't feel that close to God right now. I don't think you ever need to feel close to God, first of all. I think God's always close to you if you're a Christian. That doesn't matter how you feel. But, but I hear that statement a lot. It seems like something people say in Christian circles a lot. And what I want to say this morning is don't use that as an excuse. An excuse to neglect the fact that perhaps you're not taking seriously the person of Jesus. The, uh, an excuse to forgive yourself of the fact that you are neglecting the incredible statements that Isaiah makes in Isaiah 52, 13 through 15. And that is that Jesus wins and he's Lord of all and he demands all of your life. And Jesus was tortured, beaten, marred, disfigured for your sin. Because when we take those two things seriously, emotions will come, emotions will go, but we will always be in the right place about our passion, our love, our dedication, our devotion 
to Jesus. But when we treat Jesus like a grandpa who gives us what we want, or when we treat Jesus' death as like, yeah, Jesus died for me, but we don't really think about what that meant for him and what he suffered for us, then we will become less passionate about Jesus. We will not serve Jesus as, as fully. We, we will relegate him to a part of our lives and not the center, the, the very core of our lives. And so please, this morning, maybe for the first time in a long time, take the story of Emmanuel seriously. Let me pray for you. Lord, it's a heavy passage of scripture, God. It's a heavy book in the Bible, Lord. Um, but man, God, how beautiful it is that you, even before it happened, told us that you would win. And, and you, before you even came, said, I am Lord. And, and you, even before you came, said, I will suffer horribly. It's powerful. I pray, God, for all of us, every one of us, that we would not, God, that we would not treat this story for something like it's like it's not important, like it's not controversial, like it's not powerful, like it's not the greatest story ever. Like, uh, help us not to treat you, Jesus, more to the point, like, like you're just some guy who we can ignore and come to every now and then and, and, and spend most of our days pretending that you don't exist because, because that's not what this allows, God. We either have to accept you and embrace you and be passionate about you or we have to reject you. I pray we'd all make those decisions. And that nobody, nobody, God, who has listened to this, this sermon this morning, who will listen to it online, will, will just walk out, will just, will just pretend it didn't exist, will pretend that Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 is in the Bible, and go about our merry ways. I pray that people, God, would give their lives to you, all of their lives to you, and once again return to their first love if they're already Christians, because you are the God who came to earth and, and then died the worst death, and then rose again. And you did it so that we could be saved and so that we could call you Lord. Let us not ignore that. God, I pray that this morning as we take communion and we sing this, this song, that, that your spirit would stir in us something powerful, that we'd be brought back to the how brutal the crown of thorns was and how painful uh, the scourging was, God, and, and how, how much it must have hurt to get hit in the face by rods over and over. Bring us back to it, God. In your holy name, amen.